Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Again to Cross Point. Uh, my name is Kyle. It's the Christmas season, so sometimes we get uh, guests that roll in here that may not know. Uh, we may not know you yet, and I'd really love to get to. But my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we just want to welcome you to Christmas season at Cross Point. We kicked it off on Friday. Um, if you were there with us, that was a really great time together, uh, just like celebrating the season and kicking the thing off. And there's lots of stuff coming up. Travis is going to mention that a little bit at the end of the service. Uh, but there's lots of things to be a part of throughout the next month leading up to Christmas. And I'm excited for us to get to walk through uh, what we're going to do in here on Sunday mornings as we walk through and get closer to Christmas. And uh, we already had the passage that we're going to be working off of read this morning. And actually, if you follow our socials, uh, the verses specifically we're going to look at this morning were also read. Um, and it's, it's Isaiah chapter 9, the first handful of verses. And you might be thinking, uh, you know, I thought this Christmas stuff was like gospel, like it's the New Testament thing. Jesus is a New Testament thing. Yes, absolutely, you're, you're correct. There's lots of uh, accounts of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. But moments like this remind me and encourage me, man, this whole book is his. The whole thing is about Jesus from page one till the very end. And sometimes we have to like really, really look hard to recognize that truth. And sometimes like what we're gonna read today, it is so obvious uh, that what was written 700 plus years before Jesus was ever born uh, tells exactly what is going to happen. Um, and, and it speaks to that situation. And it speaks into history to where we are today as well. And uh, this passage of scripture, as you heard it read, um, some of it might have sounded pretty familiar to you. It has some of what I call like uh, money verses in it, like the ones that are really profitable, like you can plaster it on everything, right? Like unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, like that's the stuff that you see written in calligraphy in everyone's houses. It's literally, someone pointed out to me in between service, it's literally plastered on our windows right out there. They're the ones that people see and they recognize, like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Um, and those are awesome verses, don't, don't get me wrong. The ones that we're going to look at today, the first handful, at least very, very much so the first one, doesn't make it onto Christmas cards too much. Because uh, there's a lot about like doom and gloom, and it mentions some places that no one has any idea where they are or what they're about. Um, but I do think that what we find today, we're only going through three verses this morning. But what we find in these few verses and it continues to grow as it goes, is a really compelling picture of who we are and why we celebrate this time of year, why we celebrate Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and what that truth really means for our life, how it actually changes what we do. Now, before we get into this, I, I, I wanna uh, kind of give us some framework, I guess, um, of, of how to view this passage of scripture and how to view uh, maybe our life as it connects with this passage of scripture. Um, because we all function with different worldviews. We have different pieces of the puzzle that, that, that lenses, I guess you could say, that we look through and we see the world through. And uh, as I was doing research for this message, I came across this teaching by this guy named Tim Mackey. And he's, uh, he's involved with the Bible Project, if you've ever heard about that. 
excellent, excellent resource. If you are interested in knowing more about scripture, man, they take some intense subjects and make it really understandable for dummies like me. So it is like good, good, good stuff. I would highly, highly recommend it. Uh, But he did this whole little bit that I think could be really helpful for us this morning as we start to look at this. And he comes out on stage and he has this uh, glass and, and and he has it half full of eggnog. And he talks about how he loves eggnog. And I was like, oh, I, I love eggnog too. Like, we could be friends. I could be friends with Tim Mackey. How exciting. And he has this thing of eggnog, and he's like, who loves eggnog? Yay, some people. Who, who hates it? Boo, you know. And then he asks the crowd, he says, hey, uh, who in here would look at this and say that the, the glass is half full? Some people raise their hand. He says, who in the crowd would say that this glass is half empty? A few more reluctantly raise their hand. They see where this is going, right? And he's like, yeah, this is this like famous thought experiment, right? If you look at the cup and you say this is half full, you would probably be called an optimist. Um, You'd look look at the world as half full. You'd look at the future and say, good things can happen, will happen. We just gotta keep going. They say, if you said that the glass was half empty, you'd be a pessimist and, and, you know, things are bad and things, I don't really know if things are going to get better, so I'm going to brace myself. And then he throws out this really interesting, uh, like, concept. Um, he, he asks the question, what do we, because we tend to divide ourselves into those two categories, he said, what do we as followers of Jesus, as Jesus people, like a Jesus community, how are we supposed to see the world? How are we supposed to see ourselves and and Jesus and the things that we do and the world that we walk through? What perspective are we supposed to see the world with? And uh, he he makes some really interesting points. First, he kind of tackles the pessimism side. He's like, it doesn't really seem like followers of Jesus, that, that pessimism is on the table. Like we serve a God who calls himself our father and who loves us deeply so much so that, that he sent his son to give up his life so that we could have a relationship with the father. It seems like having a pessimistic outlook on life doesn't super connect with the characteristics we get to see about God. And so you might think then he would say, hey, as Christians, we need to embrace an optimistic view of the world and of life. But he says, no, actually, I don't think that that's probably very accurate either. And I, I would tend to agree. Because we can still look, even though we know those things are true about God, and we can see a whole lot of terrible things happening in the world around us, done by people, and sometimes done by us. We, we get this picture in scripture that things aren't necessarily just gonna get better, 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 and then we're all good, but in fact, sometimes things get worse before they ever get better. And so blind optimism isn't on the table, but pessimism isn't on the table either. And so he offers a third way, which man, Jesus always does that, right? Here's your two categories. Jesus like, neither. We're going to do it a different way. And what, what he points to, and I think that we absolutely see this, what we're going to look at today and all throughout the body of Scripture, is that we don't, as followers of Jesus, live with pessimism, and we don't live with optimism. We live with hope. And I think that's a very different way of seeing the world around us. But I need to make a clarification Hope is, uh, I, I have like this love-hate relationship with the word hope and words like hope. And here's, here's hopefully this makes sense. I think it did last service. Um, words like hope have like a ton of like emotional charge to them. Like if someone says, walks into a place like really excited and be like, hey, there's, we have like this hope, this new hope, like in Star Wars or whatever. Like in literature, you see like, hey, there's this hope. It's like, I don't even know what it is we're going for. I don't know what's going to change or what's going to be different. But yeah, I'm on board. This sounds exciting. Do you understand what I mean? 
Like there's like an emotional attachment to some of these words, even if we don't have a really great working definition. I think the first time like I really became aware of this was like however long ago it was when President Obama was uh, campaigning for office. And this is like not political at all. Don't lose the plot for the point I'm trying to make here. But as he was going through that, you might remember he had like those pretty iconic uh, posters and, and images that were around a kind of the monochromatic, like blue and blue and red. And he'd have like these slogans, right? I think change was one and hope was definitely one. And you look at it and you kind of get the sense of the energy in the room. And you're like, yeah, something, something's changing. S something's different. But then the rational part of my brain kicks in is like, but what? What's different? What's changing? What are we hoping for? What does hope even mean? And I think it's important for us to have a definition because if you opened a bunch of dictionaries and biblical dictionaries and, and uh, go online and look up a whole bunch of definitions, you'd find a variety of ways to define the word hope. All the way from, well, I hope my kids listen to me today, which is basically already resigned to the fact they're probably not listening to me today. Even though I use the word hope, right? Even though I know that that's probably not gonna happen. All the way over to the other side where like, you could say hope with like ultimate certainty. Like I hope for something, but I've basically already decided that it's gonna happen. And then there's a million little places you could land in the in-between. So what are we meant, how are we meant to see the world through this lens of hope? Um, this is a definition from compiling a whole bunch of others that I think represents the scripture we're gonna look at here today. And this is how I guess I would define it from what I see in scripture. Hope is seeing things clearly, the good and the bad. It's not discounting one or the other. Hope is seeing things clearly, but choosing to trust that there is something more. Hope isn't, hey, everything seems to be going really well and I'm expecting for it to just pan out, so I guess I will give hope to this. Hope is recognizing the full spectrum of how bad things could be, maybe even how bad they look now, but something is compelling enough to me to put my trust in it that there could be something different later. And I think if, if we look at these, passage, uh, these few verses together through that lens, we're going to see maybe a, a, a wider, richer, picture of what our life can be when we choose as Jesus people to walk in hope, to see the world in hope, seeing things clearly, myself, the world, everything clearly, good and bad, but choosing to trust that there always will be something more. So keep that in mind as we walk through these verses. I think it's helpful. Uh, verse one, you can follow along if you want to, um, starts off on a real high note. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, this is an ambiguous, uh, abstract set of time. It's not a date. It's not a specific set of years. He just says, sometime before this, he, talking about God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. You know, those two very famous Christmas locations that we hear about all the time during this season. Right up there with Santa's village, right? Zebulun and Naphtali. Like, what in the world is that? What is that saying? Like, who, who are these people and what in the world is going on? So a little bit of context is helpful here. Uh, these two were tribes of Israel. So Zebulun and Naphtali, they were sons of Jacob. And eventually their families grew and grew and grew and became tribes. They settled in the northern part of Israel. And they tended to be hit the hardest when Israel was invaded. 
when enemies would come, oftentimes they would come from the north, uh, as we read about in the Old Testament, because the sea was on one side, the mountains was on the other, so that was an easy access point. And that's where these people were living and then settled. So they got hammered like every single time that somebody invaded. And what uh, Isaiah is talking about here is not just a metaphor, it's not just an idea, this is a real thing that happened. We read about it in 2 Kings chapter 15. Um, we're not going to like go into great detail. You can look it up later if you want. But essentially what happened is the king of Assyria came into Israel and trashed the place, wrecked it so bad. If we, if we look at the uh, history, like the big history of, these, of the Israelite people in the Old Testament, what we see is they constantly are just find themselves in this cycle where God says, hey, this is what this relationship is meant to look like. And they're like, cool, I'm going to do my own thing, but thanks for telling me that. And then they do what's right in their own eyes and they do what seems best to them. And unsurprisingly, it causes a whole bunch of problems for them and their nation. And then eventually, usually in the cycle, they'll come back around and say, God, we messed up, we need forgiveness. And he is very willing to do that. But we see that cycle happen over and over again. And a lot of people agree this might've been the worst one because they trashed the place, they killed a whole bunch of people, they took a whole bunch of people as slaves and captives back to their homeland. And the entire nation was left hopeless. They, if you'd asked them at that time, they probably would have said, we are defeated. I don't know if there's any coming back from this. That was, that was the situation that they find themselves in. And so what Isaiah is saying is that in the before, that's what's going on. Hopelessness, destruction, death. You're not coming back from this. But he continues and says this in the next part of the verse. But in the latter time, again, kind of an abstract section of time. There's the before time and then there's the after time. Here's what he says. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The very place that they were vulnerable and were destroyed, he says he's going to make, that God is going to make it glorious. So he, he has this before where life is despair and gloom and death and destruction. And he said, but sometime after, things are gonna become glorious. That was then, it was bad, but there's something coming. Something that Isaiah says, will take the gloom and make it to glory. It'll swap out despair for something to hope for. But what, what does that? He, he uh, lets us know in pretty straightforward detail as he begins this poem that is gonna to start to sound more and more familiar that you've probably heard around Christmas time. In verse two, here's what he says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. He's talking about the Israelite people. If you flipped over one page to the end of chapter eight, how Isaiah ends that is he says that the people were thrust into thick darkness. So he's like, this is, this is you guys. If they had read this, they'd know this is us, that there is a people who walked in darkness, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, but on them, a light has been shown. They have seen a light. And he, he creates this incredible contrast. And he makes a point to mention that they live and they walk in the darkness. They're not just visiting the darkness. They aren't just dabbling in the darkness. They're stuck and it is the absolute worst. Now, this is a really hard thing for us to wrap our heads around, I think. I've never been a prisoner of war. I bet most people in this room haven't either. 
I don't know what it would look like to be taken from my family and my place and like shipped off to a different part of the world, never to see anybody again. I don't know what it, I don't even think I could genuinely tell you that I don't know what, that I know what it's like to be hopeless, but these people did. And so it's almost like God knew that we would struggle with that concept. And so he gives us this metaphor, this picture that maybe we can relate with a little bit. Because even though I have no idea what these guys were going through, I've tried to navigate in the dark before, and it is the worst. It is a really, really difficult thing to do. Every single one of us, I bet, at some point in our life has tried to navigate a dark room or a dark house or a dark country road or wherever it is you find yourself in the darkness. Does it ever go well when we just try to navigate through the dark? Not often. Like the one that probably most of us have experienced is I feel like probably a lot of us have like tried to navigate our homes in the dark. Maybe you woke up early and you're trying to get out of your house without waking up your spouse or your kids or whatever. Maybe you're like locking the door and you're making your way back to your bed. Almost every time, right, you bang your shin like on a coffee table because you didn't realize it was there. You don't round the corner quite wide enough and you mess your arm, you know. If you have kids of Lego age, uh, almost every parent has had that experience where you step on a Lego because you didn't see it because it was dark and you were just trying to figure out where to go. Like the, the worst one for me, and this seems so minimal comparatively, but the, the worst one for me is I hate more than anything else when I'm walking through my house in the dark and I step in a surprise mystery puddle. That is the worst thing ever. Whether you have socks on or not, is the worst feeling in the entire world. I hate it so much. I, I don't know, you can judge me if you want, but it happens way more often than I'd like to admit to you. And, you know, I, sometimes it's like ice that's melted. Sometimes somebody dropped or spilled something. Most of our kids are of potty training age, but it's possible that, you know, that might be the culprit. Sometimes the puddles are warm, and sometimes the puddles are cold, and sometimes the puddles are sticky, but every single time, I'm like, this is the absolute worst. I hate this. And here's what I'm trying to communicate, and it's like such a first world problem that, that almost seems laughable comparatively. But what Isaiah is really trying to get across is it's not like this, hey, you're in darkness, and it's this less than ideal situation, but you're doing okay, right? No, no, no. What he is trying to describe in this contrast is it is the absolute worst place you could be, the worst thing that you've experienced. And that's why this light coming in is so incredibly powerful. I mean, these people, they were slaves, they were exiled, they were killed. They didn't have what they needed. It was the literal worst thing they've ever experienced. And that could make you look at the world and at God and at yourself and be like, there is no moving forward from this. But Isaiah, he gives them hope. He gives them an encouragement. He says, you've been walking in darkness. You've been living in darkness, but a great light is here. The light has shone. And when light shows up in a place, it changes a place. We've all experienced that too, right? If you're in a dark, dark, dark room and a light goes on, everyone knows where it is and it changes the whole situation. I, I was trying to think of a good uh, way to like visualize this and my mind jumped to this. Uh, we were at uh, Angel's Camp as a shepherding team a couple years ago. And it's like the pastoral team of the church. And we go up there like once a year and we plan and we pray and we really seek God what he would want for our church. And then sometimes during the free time, uh, we kind of, uh, go go on an outing or or do something together. It's kind of fun. 
And Christine set it up for us to go visit one of those caves, those caverns that are up there in that part of the, of the state. And so we go in and, you know, they do like the tour. I don't know if any of you have been up there, but they do the tour. They take you down into the cave and they tell you about the stalactites and the stalagmites and all the stuff. And we were all having a great time, except for Travis, who apparently is really claustrophobic, but did not tell anyone about that. So he was dying. He hated it. But the rest of us were having a really good time. And we go down in there and there's a point in the tour where they, they turn off all the lights. There's like built-in lights, you know, as, as you go through the tour and they turn them all off because like, this is the blackest you'll ever see. This is like the darkest a place could be. There's no room for any light coming in here whatsoever. So they turn all the lights off. They let your eyes start to adjust. And you know, like when you're outside, your eyes kind of adjust and you can start to kind of get a sense, you know, nothing, like pitch black, pitch black. And uh, so we're sitting there and, you know, we're like joking, ha, laughing. Oh, it's so scary. Travis is like having a panic attack over in the corner. And Pastor Ross um, does something that we're all guilty of at times. So there's no judgment on him. Uh, But he tries to record the sounds that are happening with his phone and doesn't realize that the flash on his camera is on. And so it's pitch black, we're all sitting there, and all of a sudden, this huge flash from Ross's phone like lights up the entire place. Everyone's head like snaps right to him. We're like, Ross, what are you doing? We're supposed to be in the dark, da, 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 da. And what, what I'm just reminded of is that as soon as that light came on, two things happened. One, everyone noticed it. And two, it changed everything about the state that we were in. All of a sudden, we could see... Uh, Some of us were blinded by it. It was a little aggressive and assaulting at at times, but it completely changed what was going on. When light enters a dark cave, it changes the state and everything is different. And the same is true. What Isaiah is trying to get across is that you are living in darkness, but a light is here, which means everything is different. Everything has changed. So what is this? light. What is this hope that he's talking about? Well, you, you know where this is going. It's Jesus. It's the church answer, but it's true. It's Jesus. He, he refers to himself as the light of the world. There's plenty of other people that talk about him in that way. But in case we have any reservations, he explicitly tells us that this is who Isaiah is talking about. If you flipped over to Matthew chapter four, you don't have to, but I'm going to read it for you. In verse 12, this is what happens. It says, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went, uh, so Galilee should perk our, our mind up. He went to live in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then in case you still have questions, he just straight out says it, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes this exact verse land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus lets everybody who's listening know that before me was darkness, was death, was despair, was gloom. I am the light that invades that darkness and I have something waiting for you. How do you step into the light? How do you reject the darkness? He tells us, repent, turn away, recognize how our own best plans have not done us any favors. 
and trust him, put our hope in him. It's seeing, do you see how our definition of hope is helpful here? It's seeing the full picture of who we are, where we've been, what Jesus is doing and what he calls us to, which we get at least a partial picture of in the next verse in this passage of scripture. When the light invades the darkness, when the light gets turned on, this is what happens, Isaiah says. You, speaking of God, have multiplied the nation, that somehow all the people of the world are going to come in mysteriously through the nation of Israel because Jesus was born into this people group, that all the people of the world will come into God's family, that this thing would grow and grow and grow and grow. He says, you have multiplied the nations. That's what we can count on. That's what we have hope for. And you have increased its joy. Well, good news that when the lights turn on, when we give our lives over to Jesus, our joy is increased. But I'm so grateful that God doesn't leave us to interpret what joy means. He gives us two really clear kind of guidelines for the kind of joy that he says is available to us. Joy, like hope, is one of those words that I feel like we have a million definitions for. Sometimes it's like, I'm just feeling good in the moment. Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes it's just like gritting and we're miserable, but we say we have joy. You know, it's all across the board. But what's really cool here is God gives us two metaphors that we can define the joy that we get to participate in with him by. And there are two that would have absolutely been accessible to the people who were listening to them, um, but might be a little hard for us. So I'm, I'm gonna try to provide a little bit of context. The first is this, that we rejoice as with joy at the harvest. Now there's some people in this room, probably, who know exactly what that joy feels like. Like you, you work in agriculture, you get what harvest is, you get what it does. Uh, but for a lot of us, it's like, I don't, I don't know what joy at the harvest actually means. Um, an experience I had a number of years ago, I think provides a little bit of perspective. I was in Maine, the state of Maine, at a church camp, and I, I was uh, a counselor at this camp, and it, and it pulled kids from all over the state to this church camp. And we were getting to know them and, and stuff like that. And I always thought of Maine as like lobster central, you know, like they do lobsters up in Maine. But actually their like biggest export is potatoes, which feels less fancy than <laughs> lobsters, you know. But they, they have this huge potato industry. And we were talking with these kids and I was floored by this. They said, we were like, oh, what are you into? What's your favorite thing? They're like, oh, you know what my like favorite part of the year is? Like, we really like camp, but you know what my favorite part of the year is? Harvest break. I was like, harvest break? What are you talking about? They, the school literally lets these kids out of school for three weeks in a row so that they can go help with the harvesting of the potatoes. And these kids loved it. They liked it more than their Christmas break. They liked it more than their summer break. They loved harvest break. They're out there using machinery. They're out there like separating the potatoes, getting it all packed up. There's, it's highly communal. It, it like teaches good uh, like patterns and, and morals and all that good stuff. And these kids absolutely loved it. And I will never forget looking at them telling me we love to go pick potatoes with such joy in their eyes. They thought it was the best thing that they could do because it meant, hey, my family and our farm is good for another year. Like, hey, we have what we need to be able to keep going, not only financially and, and, and resource-wise, but also the people around us. We have what we need. It was, it was all about the provision that the harvest provided. And the same is true for the people who have seen the light, the light of Jesus, have put their trust and hope in him that we get to rejoice because God has provided. 
like those potato kids at the harvest because we know that we'll be good because God is trustworthy. And then he gives us another picture. The joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is like a military situation, which again, I don't have a framework for that. And I don't think the military even advocates for just splitting up people's stuff after they win a battle. I don't know. Um, so I don't really have a frame of reference to that, but they would, they would do this in ancient times. The, the closest thing I can think of to dividing the spoils is when we come back after vertigo every year, after our summer camp, we come back with an enormous box of lost and found stuff. Um, I know, amazing. Teenagers forgetting things. It's wild. But they, they leave all this stuff, and some of it's like good stuff, like clothing and stuff I would never spend money on, like good stuff. And so what we do is we do our due diligence, we announce it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. We call anybody that has a number on anything or a name on anything saying, hey, your stuff's here. If anything's like really expensive or if it's like money, we make sure to like send that where it needs to go and all that stuff. But eventually as we go, these things, some of these, some of these items just get abandoned. And they sit in this box. And they sit in this box that what we typically do, we'll leave it for six months, which is like right around this time. So it's like early Christmas for us. <laughs> And sometime in December, we take this box and we dump it in a big pile in the middle of the office and we're like, all right, let's divide the spoils. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a big guy. I know that comes as a surprise to you. So literally, I'm like, I look up to a lot of like the 15, 16, 17-year-olds in, in the youth ministry. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that I might fit in a 15-year-old's sweatshirt, you know? And some of them are really awesome. And I would be lying to you if I said that I don't have multiple hoodies at my house that are from probably some of your kids. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's the closest picture I can think of of dividing the spoils. But I'm excited about that day. I'll be really honest with you. Like, it's a good day. I'm pumped. I would never spend that much money on stuff, but I get to have it. How cool. The same thing is what's trying to be communicated here, but in a much more significant way. Like the victory has been won. It's done. It's taken care of and it's settled. And now we get to, to split out all the good stuff that we've been given as a result. That's the kind of joy that we get to have when we put our hope and trust in Jesus. That's the kind of joy that Isaiah says is sometime after the light invades. So we have one more question to ask this morning as we start to wrap up. Is this meant just for them? Is this meant just for the time when Jesus walked the earth? You might, you might be picking this up and, and he only gets more straightforward as the verses go, but Isaiah isn't just talking about a historic moment and he isn't just talking about something that is only meant for the physical strength and prospering of the nation of Israel. That's not just what he's trying to say. Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, he's given us a gospel presentation. He's laying out who we were, what Jesus has done, and who we can be afterwards. Even in these just three verses, three verses that don't even mention Jesus by name. Before Jesus is darkness, gloom, despair, hopelessness. But we have a hope for something coming, something more, a, a glory, Scripture says, a huge family, it tells us, of so many people being brought into it that some of them look alike, some of them are very different, and a joy like the farmer in harvest and the soldier in victory. And the reason we have that hope is because the light of the world, Jesus Christ, has entered into our darkness and got rid of it. That's the gospel. 
And that's an incredible truth. And so I feel like there's two different kinds of people in here this morning. I, I gotta believe that there's people here this morning who don't know Jesus. Maybe you've been to church a lot. Maybe you've been here your whole life. But if you were really honest with yourself, you're like, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I think it would be stupid for us to miss the opportunity to walk through this. If that's you here this morning, I say this with like the, the deepest compassion. What Isaiah says is you are walking around in the dark. You are stumbling around in the dark with no purpose. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you're going. That's what he says. And I say to this to students all the time, I do not think it's that hard to convince people that that's true. If anyone is living with a shred of honesty, yes, we are capable of good things in our life. Even people who don't know Jesus are capable of some good things. That's, that's the image that God stamped on us, I think. But we do not have to walk through this planet more than five minutes to recognize that we are capable of some terrible stuff, some deep, deep evil. We see that in the world around us. We see that from other people. And let's be real, when we look deep enough in here, we see it in here too, right? So I don't know if it's that hard to convince you, but I think the thing that immobilizes us is if we confront that, yeah, I'm in the dark, stumbling around, stepping on Legos and in mystery puddles my entire life with no hope of any change, but there's no way that that can change. I, I just want you to hear this, the light has come into the darkness. And he says, recognize where you've been, look to me, that's what repenting is, and follow me. That's an invitation that Jesus offers you this morning, right now. And when we accept that invitation, when we surrender our life over to him, what he promises is that we get to be brought into this huge family that spans language and ethnicity and geographical location and time we get to be brought into this huge family and we get to experience real joy. That's not circumstantial. That doesn't come and go. A joy like the farmer at the harvest and a joy like the soldier at a victory. That's what you get to experience when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. And you have the opportunity to step into that today. This is not a magic room. It's not that special. <laughs> Like the spirit has been working in your life before you ever walked in here. And if you feel any kind of tug whatsoever that, hey, I think I am walking in darkness and I need to do something about it, do not ignore it. Please do not ignore it. There's so much better to hope for in your life. Do not walk out of this place without making some kind of response. There are no magic words. You don't have to say a special prayer. All it takes is what Jesus said. You recognize I'm in the dark. Jesus, you are the light. Will you give me hope for something better? And he will meet you right there. In a little while, we're gonna have an opportunity for people to come up to pray and we do that every week. But man, if you feel something going on in you, you're not even sure what to call it. Do not let this moment go by. Respond because walking out of here, you could have a lot more hope for the world that lies in front of you. And the other group of people are the people, those of us in this room who, who know Jesus. We've given our life to him. We love him. We try to serve him. It's an imperfect pursuit, but that's what we're about. Man, it is so good to be reminded of this truth, isn't it? It is really good for us to be reminded of who we were, what he's done, 
and what that means for us moving forward. It is so easy for us to lose sight of that, right? To think somehow maybe we deserve this or to think somehow maybe we deserve something specific as it goes. I mean, my goodness, if we recognize the incredible sacrifice that Jesus has made, the incredible gift that he's given us, how he's moved us from death to life and from darkness to light, what in the world could we walk into this week that could ever shake that? Like we are good. We have been provided for. He has already won the victory. We do not need to whine. We do not need to bemoan our situation. And God cares about all that. Don't get me wrong. But man, in perspective, we have hope that produces joy in our lives. Let's act like it. Let's live like it. So that when people see us, they're like, man, I want to get, get involved in that. This is a really good reminder to us. And as we wrap up, um, and so, oh, so what I would say to, to those of us in here who do know Jesus, this is also an opportunity to respond. If you don't know Jesus, respond. If you do know Jesus, respond in gratitude for what he has done, being reminded of the good gifts that he's given us and the way forward and the future that he has laid out for us. This morning is a morning of response. I don't know what that looks like for you, but this truth is too good for us to ignore. And so as we uh, take communion together this morning, and then we're gonna sing a song and then that'll give us an opportunity to respond in our hearts and our minds, whether we need to go talk to someone or whatever. Um, I think this is a really good way to, to enter into that time. Because the reality is the hope that we have doesn't lie in a baby because that baby grew up and became a man. And that man gave up his life so that we could have relationship with the Father. That's where our hope comes from. That's where our joy comes from. And so as we observe communion this morning, you can take out the bread. And Jesus, he sat around with his friends the night before he was gonna be betrayed, the night he was betrayed. And he passed around the bread and he broke it. And he said, you see how this bread is broken? My body is gonna be broken for you. They didn't understand what that meant he said, my body will be broken for you so that you no longer have to live in the darkness, but you can move with me into the light. As we take the bread together, let's remember how he's made that transition possible for each and every one of us. Let's take the bread together. He then passed around the cup. He said, you see how this wine pours out of this cup? Soon my blood will be poured out. And through the pouring out of my blood, you will be able to be made clean. You have a new way forward. You have a future to look forward to. You have hope now because of what I'm going to do for you. Let's remember that as we take the cup together. As we get ready to sing, I would just encourage you the Spirit is speaking something into your heart and life, I think it can be so easy to say, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. But we don't want to spend any more time in what was before, right? We want to embrace and look forward to the things that come after, the latter days, the glory days, the days where Jesus is king of our life and eventually will be king of all. He already is king of all, but we'll get to see him tangibly as king of all. And as we 
as we like think through like what it is he might be speaking to us, I just think the temptation is to hold off, but let's, let's embrace it. Whatever we need to do, let's respond to what he's doing in us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're really good and we're really thankful. I feel like I couldn't say that enough times this morning. <laughs> but I think sometimes it's because we're not so sure we actually believe that. So Lord, would that be true of us? Lord, if there's people in this room this morning that don't know you, you want them in your family so bad. Lord, would you, would you just be with them in such a tangible way that's compelling that they can't ignore you? Would, would you be like the light in the darkness that they're living in? that they can't help but see that something's different and they need to go for it. Lord, for those of us who know you and love you, but sometimes find it hard to live with joy because following you is hard sometimes. Lord, would we remember, would we, would we be reminded and encouraged of the type of joy that we get to live with, that we have the opportunity to live with? And Lord, would you give us the courage to respond to the things that you're telling us to do in the ways that you're speaking into our lives this morning? In your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.